0: Hello, and welcome to You've Got to Read This, a podcast for those with a passion for reading. Each year, hundreds of thousands of books are published in the U.S. Millions are published worldwide. Join us as we navigate the world of books in hopes of introducing you to something new. I'm Michelle Dubois.
1: And I'm Renee Seinfeld.
0: And you're listening to You've Got to Read This. Our first book today is a novel called Plain Bad Heroines by Emily M. Danforth. The story begins in Rhode Island in 1902 at an all-girls boarding school called Brookhaunts, where the tragic death of two students takes place. A third girl dies soon thereafter, and due to the scandalous events, the school eventually closes its doors for good. Upon their deaths, the same book is found in each of their possession, leading everyone to wonder if the book or Brookhant's is
1: cursed. The story then jumps to present-day Los Angeles, where a well-known movie producer known for horror films has decided to make a movie about those deaths at the boarding school. He wants to film the movie on site at Brookhant's, now a private estate, a place locals believe is haunted. The story unfolds as the reader is introduced to the actresses to play those three girls. Chilling things start to happen as soon as they get their scripts. Is there a curse? Is it coincidence? Or is mass hysteria the cause of these bizarre occurrences? I found this to be a really enjoyable read. What did you think?
0: I thought it was a really clever novel. It's like a combination of Shirley Jackson's book The Haunting of Hill House and Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. It also reads a little bit like a lesbian version of a Jane Austen novel.
1: Yeah, perfect matches. You know, when you say... Rebecca and The Haunting of Hill House. I, I do have to say, we both watched that mo- movie on Netflix or the series on Netflix, The Haunting of Hill House. That was so scary. But the novel um, by Shirley Jackson was more of that 1950s classic kind of gothic thriller and horror vibe. And she really captured it in plain bad heroines. For sure. Yeah, and for 600 pages, it really didn't feel daunting. It
0: was an enjoyable, easy read.
1: I felt that way too like I put it down for maybe a week or two I read another book and it was so easy to come back to so Mm -hmm. easy to remember all the characters and for 600 pages it and she did a lot of backstory on, on each of the characters and it was so effortless and so enjoyable. There were two things I really enjoyed about the story. One is how the author took us back and forth from present day, back to 1902, and you learn about the three girls and what led up to their deaths. It was a very creative unfolding. My other favorite thing was how the narrator frequently brought the reader into the story. She would stop in the middle of writing and say, reader, you really want to pay attention and remember this name. It's important.
0: She does that and she incorporates a lot of footnotes, which is unusual for a novel,
1: but they add valuable content to the story. They do, um, but I did struggle with the footnotes. I did not read them all. <laughs> um, I feel like I can commit to reading a 600-page book, but I can't do that and read footnotes. So, you know, I kind of had to make some choices. <laughs> Fair enough. And that's okay. You can read the story
0: without the footnotes. True, true. The title of this book, again, is Plain Bad Heroines by Emily M. Danforth. It was published by HarperCollins and came out in October of 2020. Emily M. Danforth is a white American author. She was an associate professor of English at Rhode Island College for several years. She's written one other novel, a YA novel, entitled The Miseducation of Cameron Post, which did so well that it was turned into a film in 2018.
1: I just finished an incredibly moving memoir entitled The Salt Path by Rainer Wynne, who is a white woman from Wales. In 2010, Rainer Wynne and her husband were living an idyllic life. They were happily married for 32 years. They owned a small farm in Wales that also had a vacation rental component, and they had two grown children away at university. All was well and good until a failed investment devastated them. At the advice of a friend, they invested it in a startup business. What they didn't know until that business failed was that they were personally responsible for the debt owed to creditors. Rainer and her husband got a lawyer. Three years and ten court dates later, they ended up losing their legal battle, which meant creditors were free to go after all of their assets. They lost their house, their farm, their business, their money. All of their assets were seized and turned over to creditors. After all was said and done, they were left with a few personal belongings, their van, and a few hundred euros. This is where Rainer Wynn's memoir begins, when she's 53 years old and bailiffs are knocking on the front door to evict them. Two days after that eviction, Rainer's husband was diagnosed with corticobasal degeneration, a rare and fatal neurodegenerative brain disease. Doctors gave him two years to live after that diagnosis. Derailed in every way imaginable and not wanting to burden their friends and family with their homelessness, Rayner and her husband decided to just walk. With what little money they had left, they bought an inexpensive tent, two backpacks, a couple of sleeping bags, and made the decision to walk the Southwest Coast Path in Southwest England. It's a 630-mile walking trail that runs along the Atlantic Ocean and takes two months to complete. For American equivalent, the distance would be similar to walking from Washington, D.C. to Montreal, Canada, or walking from San Francisco to Portland, Oregon. With nothing but a tent and backpacks, they left their old life and embarked on an unknown journey. Rainer's book, The Salt Path, is about their journey together. Walking the 630-mile trail gave Rainer and her husband time. Time to absorb and come to terms with the shock of their life circumstances And it gave them time to deal with the grief of her husband's diagnosis It was as much an emotional journey as it was a physical one And uh, I have to say this story is so moving and was equally inspiring It sounds like the memoir isn't so much about them losing their house or her husband's illness It's truly about the walk Absolutely, the, the majority of the book was about that The events that happened before the hike she dealt with in the first few pages Um, and it was so interesting how their life got boiled down to the most basic needs budgeting money for food finding a place to pitch a tent at night caring for their bodies so they could keep on going it was such a metaphor for life Um, One thing that I found interesting was they were on assistance. So every week they would get 48 euros and every two or three days they would actually walk through a town. They were able to go to the grocery store, get some supplies. And there was this one day when they went and the 48 euros wasn't in their bank account and they had forgotten to shut off their homeowner's insurance. So it was swept out of their checking account and they had about 10 euros to, to feed them for a week um it was so they would frequently meet challenges similar to that and what's
0: additionally interesting about that is they truly are homeless and they are living day to day scraping by to get their next meal but yet they look like backpackers right they're they're hiking along this path that probably a lot of uh adventurers and travelers make a goal to to complete and so were they perceived as homeless people or travelers
1: yeah you know she talked about that quite a bit she actually pondered what people would have thought of them if they and their backpacks and tent were pitched in the middle of london and an alley next to a garbage can versus you know being on a trail in the middle of nature and it's a really good point that they were on the trail and sometimes people saw them as these kind of adventurers and these hikers and there were times when they actually shared with people they met what happened to them and people got uncomfortable and they you could see them kind of withdraw and change the conversation versus the times when they actually chose not to people to tell people what happened to them and they got very different reactions and they were admired for doing what they were doing it was very interesting that's a really fascinating aspect of the book, I
0: think. Yeah. Not that I've read it yet, but I imagine that particular identity of of being perceived as homeless or an
1: adventurer or just a, a traveler. Exactly. And I have to say, I'm very excited. I just found out she has another book coming out on April 6th. It's What Happened Once They Got Back. Mm-hmm. So I'm really looking forward to that one. For our listeners, the book again is The Salt Path by Rainer Wynn. Her first name is spelled R-A-Y-N-O-R. Her last name is spelled W-I-N-N. The book was published in the United States by Penguin in 2019.
0: I recently finished reading What Unites Us Reflections on Patriotism, a book of essays by white American journalist Dan Rather. The book was co authored with Elliot Kirshner, Dan Rather's colleague and senior producer for the television show Dan Rather Reports. Dan Rather was born during the Great Depression and grew up poor in Houston, Texas during the 1930s and 40s. He fell in love with reporting at a young age. At 10, he contracted rheumatic fever and was bedridden for months. During his confinement, his daily companion was Edward R. Murrow's voice, coming through the radio reporting live from London during the Blitz in World War II. After high school, he attended Sam Houston State Teachers College, where he earned a degree in journalism. By 1962, he was living in New York, where he eventually became a prominent CBS News correspondent, a job that put him at the front lines of history, tragedy, and celebration. He has lived through and reported on events including the Civil Rights Movement, JFK's assassination, the landing on the moon, Watergate, the AIDS epidemic, 9-11, and many more. Unlike ordinary Americans, his press pass gave him access to decades of historic moments where he witnessed the character of our nation from the front row. Now, at 89 years old, Dan Rather reflects on the qualities and characteristics of American patriotism, He contemplates on topics such as freedom, community, exploration, responsibility, and character. His essays explore American values, including freedom of the press, public education, the environment, science, the arts, and even compassion. One of my favorite chapters is the essay on empathy. He writes that empathy builds community. He believes a country that has highly empathetic citizens is a country that can unify toward a common purpose. Throughout the book, Dan Rather shares his own personal evolution, responding to an ever changing world. In each of the essays, he weaves the thread of his personal experiences and those around him to tell a story about America. He is humble and honest in his writing, acknowledging that he is a white man in America, and his story is not every American's story. This was a cathartic book to read during such troubling times in America. Dan Rather is not naive to the challenges that await us as a nation, but his compilation of essays certainly bolster one's courage to persevere and forge ahead. Our next two books are works of nonfiction written by Isabel Wilkerson, entitled Cast, and The Warmth of Other Sons. Isabel Wilkerson is a Black American Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author. Her debut book, The Warmth of Other Sons, became a national bestseller and was recognized as the time's 10 best nonfiction books of the 2010s. Her second book, Cast, was published in 2020 and has been named the number one nonfiction book of the year by Time Magazine and recently received a Goodreads Choice Award for Best History and Biography. I'd like to start with her most recent book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. In America, we knowingly describe ourselves as having a class system, the poor, the working class, the middle class, and the upper class. Isabel Wilkerson suggests... That in addition to a class system, we also have a caste system. By definition, caste is the system of dividing society into hereditary social hierarchies. Unlike a social class in which you can ascend or descend the ladder, you can't change your caste through hard work. In most cases, you are born into it. In Wilkerson's book, she explores the history of caste in America, how it was created, why we don't acknowledge it, and the havoc it wreaks on society. To underscore the impact caste has on a nation, Wilkerson compares America's caste system to the one in India and Nazi Germany. To my horror, she shows that Adolf Hitler based much of his anti-Semitic practices on American segregation laws. Just as Jim Crow laws restricted the rights of black Americans, Nazi Germany created anti-Semitic laws to legally strip away rights from Jewish people these racist and anti-Semitic laws became the justification of dehumanization and murder of people deemed to be members of an inferior caste. India's strict caste system illustrates just how psychologically penetrating and damaging a long-sustaining caste system can be on individual groups and on an entire nation. The way to create, maintain, and perpetuate a caste system are what Wilkerson calls the eight pillars of caste. When orchestrated together, the eight pillars convince every citizen that the social divisions are the natural order of things. Wilkerson argues that when successfully implemented, caste is invisible and can't be easily identified by its occupants. Caste, she writes, becomes a belief system passed on from generation to generation. This book is part history, part sociology, and part autobiography. Cast is a critically important book offering an enlightened perspective and a new awareness to understand racism in America.
1: When we were talking about this book the other day, you mentioned a personal example Isabel Wilkerson gave about her experience with Cast. She was on a plane in first class. Economically,
0: she's a middle or upper class woman, highly educated, professional journalist. She was treated in a hostile manner by fellow first class passengers and even the flight attendant. She may have been in the same social and economic class as the other passengers, but their behavior toward her reflected the caste system. They were upset that the hierarchy of caste had been disrupted. And
1: that idea of caste is such an enlightening one. Um, We'll talk about the warmth of other suns shortly, but that whole idea was so enlightening. And I kept thinking of a specific example of this um, gentleman that she talked about in the book um, He's a black surgeon. He grew up in Louisiana. And I think in the f- 40s or 50s, he entered the military. He was a surgeon in the military. And the colonel assigned him to a new post in Austria where he would be the head of surgery. And he flew out to Salzburg, showed up to his commanding officer, another colonel. And this man turned out to be a white man who was deeply racist and from Mississippi. And just like that, he was pulled back into the South, pulled back into that caste system, forced him down to that bottom rung of the imposed hierarchy, and that Colonel did not allow him to be the head of surgery.
0: Yeah, in your example, the white Colonel is saying to the black surgeon, you'll never be more than I allow you to be, which is what the first class passengers and the flight attendant were conveying to Isabella Wilkerson. Racism is the result of a long-held caste system, a system that was created to intentionally elevate one group above another to keep them separate and divided. I would say you've got to read Caste, The Origins of Our Discontents, for a new understanding and perspective of the numerous layers of racism in America,
1: including our personal biases and their origins. Isabel Wilkerson's other book is entitled The Warmth of Other Suns, The Story of America's Great Migration. It was published by Random House in 2010 and focuses on the mass migration of black American Southerners over the course of six decades. From 1915 to 1970, six million black Southerners left the South. Many fled for their lives. Others felt pulled to other areas of the country that were free from Jim Crow laws. They hoped that by moving north or to the West Coast, they could live a life without racial barriers and could live life free from the terror and vicious brutality perpetrated by white Southerners. Over the course of six decades, six million Black Southerners migrated from the South to Chicago, California, New York City, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and Detroit. To gather this rich and comprehensive history, Isabel Wilkerson traveled all over the United States and spent 15 years interviewing and preserving the oral histories of over 1,200 people. She interviewed people in their living rooms, their churches, community centers, and at funerals. All of the people she interviewed were either a part of or a descendant of this mass migration. In the warmth of other sons, Isabel Wilkerson also focuses on the lives of five specific individuals. We learn about their childhoods in the South, what inspired each of their decisions to leave, their physical journey out of the south, and what their lives became once arriving at their new destination in the north or west coast. One of the people Isabel Wilkerson interviewed was an elderly man named George Swanson Starling. She interviewed the elderly Mr. Starling in his Harlem apartment in 1996. He fled Florida in the 1940s after a friend warned him that a group of white men were coming to kill him. Why? He dared advocate for more pay. For himself and the other black workers who picked oranges in the groves for a living. He fled in the middle of the night and his journey took him to Harlem where he carved out a new life for himself. Another person interviewed was Ida May Brandon Gladney, who was 83 years old when Isabel Wilkerson first interviewed her. Ida May and her husband left Mississippi in the 1930s after her husband's cousin was almost beaten to death by a group of white men who wrongly accused him of stealing some turkeys. The white men realized they were wrong about the accusation when the turkeys came wandering out of the woods the next morning. Ida May's relative was beaten with chains and left for dead, all because of an incorrect accusation. Ida May and her husband's migration took them to Chicago. What many of the people who left the South discovered was that though the North and West were indeed better than the South, racism remained a constant barrier throughout their lives. Racism related to housing and employment and general security. They were still not able to move throughout our country free from worry and to live without harassment, exclusion, and callous insensitivity. The oral histories in this book are about courage, resilience, and survival. They're about fighting to be free of discrimination and everyone's inherent right to flourish. This is just a phenomenal book. If you're someone who doesn't typically read nonfiction, and you might only read one or two nonfiction books a year, this is the one to read. Both books we discussed are, again, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents, and The Warmth of Other Suns, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration. The author is Isabel Wilkerson. Her last name is spelled W-I-L-K-E-R-S-O-N. If listeners are looking for something fun and mischievous, I'd recommend the new comedic thriller entitled Finley Donovan is Killing It by Elko Cosimano. It's published by Minotaur Books and just came out in February. The main character Finley is trying to adjust to the chaos of her new life as a single mother and divorcee. An author, she's also in the midst of writer's block and she's well past her publisher's deadline to produce some new chapters for her next book. While talking about the murder plot for her next novel with her publicist over lunch at Panera, a woman overhears the conversation and mistakes Finley for a hitman. A desperate note slipped into Finley's diaper bag begins a chain of events that takes the reader on a wild ride with a satisfying ending. Finley Donovan is Killing It is the first novel in a new comedic thriller series by author El Cosimano. If listeners enjoyed O'Yinkin Braithwaite's novel My Sister the Serial Killer, the BBC series Killing Eve, or the HBO series Search Party, then you'll absolutely adore the novel Finley Donovan Is Killing It. El Cosimano is a white American author who lives in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Central Virginia and is the author of thrillers, mysteries, and speculative fiction for both adults and teens. The author's first name is spelled E L L E. Her last name, C-O-S-I-M-A-N-O. Thank you for listening to You've Got to Read This.